Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. And recording sound. I'm recording my sound too. Look at us in tandem. Look at us. Just look at us. <laughs> Hi, Dominic. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly swallowed me microphone. Hi, Kate. Hi. <laughs> it's a pleasure to see you as always. What are the odds of running into you here? I know. It's like you're a stalker or something. I, I am. Am I doing well? Yeah, I didn't see okay. you behind the bushes. Oh, boom. <laughs> the bushes. How are you doing, Kate? I'm super. As people are listening to this on our Friday release, I am at my last day of school for term three. I'm going to pack my bags on the afternoon and I'm going to cruise down to Geelong for the uh, 2022 Victorian Teachers Games, which is basically schoolies, but for people with money. Yeah. It's going to be electric. There's sport, there's lots of drinking. There's <laughs> just a great fun time and just amazing people I can't wait to see. So that I'm, I'm absolutely jazzed. <laughs> All right. Well, you're repping the Shit and Bricks brand. Take some of our non-existent stickers and business yeah. cards. <laughs> and wear our T-shirt that I haven't got <laughs> done. I'm packing it in my bag we, now. We should get onto that, actually. Um. <laughs> Good point. If only we knew someone that worked for a company that could print <laughs> merchandise. <laughs> uh, I'll get onto it, I promise. No, you're killing it. I love it. How are you going? Okay. I'm right. not doing so great. <laughs> so Dom, I asked Dom how he was. We have a bit of a chat debrief before we start recording. And I said to Dom, how are you going? And he goes, I'm going to save it for the episode. <laughs> and so I don't know yet how Dom's going. We're all learning this at the same time. Please tell me what's going on. Okay, so just a quick disclaimer. I may lose my voice halfway through this episode because... It's my turn to speak. Um, Great. But that's okay. It's going to add to the raspiness of the whole vibe. Sexy. But since this time last week, Kate, shortly after I got off the recording session with you, my body decided to cave in on itself and give up on life pretty much. Mm -hmm. And um, I have not left the house except for a visit to emergency um, and I've got a very severe case of gastroenteritis and oh my God. I have barely eaten in like a week. I reckon I've lost like five kilos oh. and I've been bedridden. It's been the most painful and the most uncomfortable thing I think I've ever gone through. <laughs> oh my God. 
Are you improved? Do you feel like you're improving? Is this on the tail end? What's going the on? The past two days that I've been, I've been able to get out of bed and have a shower is, is huge. And I'm That's still good. just on liquids. I can keep liquids down, but I haven't okay. really been able to eat. So I'm very weak. I'm very lightheaded. I'm very oh my God. delirious even. <laughs> so if Dom's telling the story, then all of a sudden it's just my voice. It's because Dom's passed away. Yeah. We'll try and avoid that. <laughs> But I've got you back. So if, you know, you need to sub out, I can open up your uh, your doco and I can I can read through can it. So it please give me a little nod. Give me a signal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's too energetic. No, don't. Don't. You're going to pass away. Yeah. Don't. So folks, Just sip your liquids. I'm going to do my best to get through this painful story that I struggled with the, in the first um, episode. <laughs> when you were healthy mm. and now you're holding on by a thread. Yeah. So fingers crossed, everyone. You could be witnessing history. We are going to do it. So for those that haven't listened to it, please pause this episode and go back a couple episodes to episode 34 and listen to the Candyman part one. Um, mm-hmm. The last point that we left this story Kate we just had gone through a very long list of 27 28 uh, victims of our not so dear friend um, Dean Arnold call so now let's find out what happens yes please on the fateful night of August 8 1973 So on the evening of the 7th, the night before, Henley, age 17, invited a 19-year-old named Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Call's Pasadena residence. Now, Curley was a casual acquaintance of Call's who was intended to be the next victim. Now, he accepted the offer, and we all know the usual sort of programming that, that this network of killers did um mm-hmm. and it was pretty similar you know that it was an offer to come back to a house you know have some fun now brooks david brooks was not present at the time now the two youths that's henley and curly um mm-hmm. they arrived at call's house where they sniffed some paint fumes and drank some alcohol until midnight before leaving the house now this is where I left off the previous episode, so we know all okay. of all this sort of stuff. Now, do you remember Rhonda Louise, the 15-year-old, the neighbour across the road? Yes. That's right. Now, they went to go sort of um, protect her and take care of her because she, she was in some sort of abusive situation. And oh, she, that's right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and she ended up hanging out with Henley and Curly. And they were, like, drinking beer and having some pot. Does that really kill the mood? They're like, why is this bird here? No, you know, they're just sort of youths getting up to mischief and all that sort of stuff. Sniffing paint and whatnot. Mm. Now, Henley awoke to find himself lying upon his stomach and call snapping handcuffs onto his wrists. So this is after their big night of, you know, paint fumes and pot. Paint sniffing and and pot, yeah. Now, Henley, so Henley was obviously one of the perpetrators, if you remember. He was one of the people that would snag victims and often participated in the torture and rape and murder. Mm -hmm. But he's the one that woke up lying on his stomach and Call was snapping uh, handcuffs onto his wrists. Um, Henley's mouth had been taped shut and his ankles had been bound together. Now, Curly and Williams 
lay beside Henley, securely bound with nylon rope, gagged with adhesive tape and lying face down on the floor. And Curly had been stripped naked. So all three have been right. set upon by our friend Call. Our friend the Candyman. Mm. I think that you need consent for that. Yes, please. I don't know. Like I have not read the book uh, <laughs> on that, but that's my understanding, my basic understanding. Word of the week. Yeah. <laughs> now, noting Henley had awoken, Call removed the gag from his mouth. Henley protested in vain against Call's actions, whereupon Call reiterated that he was angry with Henley for bringing a girl to his house and that he oh, was see? going to kill all three teenagers after he had assaulted and tortured Curly. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it was going to be a problem. No amount of paint sniffing can deal with that. Yeah. So Call initially said, man, you blew it bringing that girl. Before shouting, I'm going to kill you all. But first, I'm going to have my fun. He then repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest before lifting Henley to his feet, dragging him into his kitchen and placing a .22 calibre pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. A .22 is a little gun. Yeah. Commonly referred to as like a lady's gun, sexist. Mm, very much so. Now, Henley calmed Call, promising to participate in the torture and murder of both Williams and Curly if Call released him. And they always had this sort of, like, weird power over one another, like Brooks, Henley and Call. You know, Call obviously being the candy man, being the original, he's the adult here, really. But throughout their whole relationship, it's interesting how Henley and Brooks sort of played off one another, played played Call off each, you know, they just had a very interesting dynamic. Yeah. All right, so... Henley uh, calmed Call, uh, saying that he'd participate. After approximately 30 minutes of discussion, Call agreed and untied Henley, then carried Curly and Williams into his bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of his torture board. Curly was on his stomach and Williams was on her back. Call then handed Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away Williams' clothes, insisting that... While he would rape and kill Curly, Henley would do likewise to Williams. Henley began cutting away Williams' clothes as Cole undressed and began to assault and torture Curly. Both Curly and Williams had awakened by this point, so they were awake through all of this. And Curly began writhing and shouting as Williams, whose gag Henley had removed, lifted her head and asked Henley, is this for real? To which Henley answered yes. Williams then asked Henley, are you going to do anything about it? Help, help us out? Yeah. Any, any chance? Any, like, skerrick of hope you could just help, help us out here, mate? Now, Henley then asked Call whether he might take Williams into another room. Call ignored him and Henley then grabbed Call's pistol, shouting, you've gone far enough, Dean. As Call clambered over Curly, Henley elaborated, I can't go any longer. I can't have you kill all of my friends. Call approached Henley saying, kill me, Wayne. And Henley stepped back a few paces as Call continued to advance upon him, shouting, you won't do it. Henley then fired at Call, hitting him in the forehead. <gasps> Stop it. Now, the bullet failed to fully penetrate Cole's skull and he continued to lurch toward Henley, whereupon the youth fired another two rounds, hitting Cole in the left shoulder. 
and Call then ran out of the room, hitting the wall of the hallway. Henley fired three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder as Cole slid down the wall in the hallway outside the room where the two other teenagers were bound. Oh my God. Cole died where he fell, his naked body lying facing toward the wall. Oh, with a bullet in his head, which didn't bother him. (laughs) But the lower back ones got him. And I definitely know that feeling, you know, like you've got a bit of a headache you can muster on. But, you know, I sleep slightly wrong and my lower back, gone. Yeah, a couple of Panadine fought, you'll be right, babe. Oh, bless it. Now, Henley would later recall that having shot Call, the sole thought in his mind in the moments immediately thereafter was that Call would have been proud of the way he had behaved during the confrontation. Oh, my God. I know, how fucked up is that? That's so fucked adding that he had been training him to react quickly and forcefully and that his and that was exactly what he had done. Great. You have to think what what does it mean to Henley's state of being in mind here where his first thought is the person that he'd just killed would be so proud of how well he'd he had done it. He'd be thrilled. Yeah, he'd be thrilled with that. There's not many work environments where that's, you know, <laughs> You know, when that's done, they're like, you should learn to stand up to people more. Okay, I'll stand up to you. No, no, I didn't mean me. I meant someone else. (laughs) But good job. The employee of the month. (laughs) Oh, you're getting a little sticker. It's going on your name badge and you get a free burger from Macca's. And a plaque up on the wall. (laughs) Now, after he had shot Call, Henley released Curly and Williams from the torture board and all three teenagers dressed and discussed what actions they should take. Now, Henley suggested to Curly and Williams that they should simply leave, to which Curly replied, no, we should call the police. Yeah. Henley agreed and looked up the number for the Pasadena Police Department in Cole's own telephone directory. I believe it's 911. <laughs> Look, I don't know if it was 911 back in 1973. Oh, in the 70s. Okay. All right. You continue speaking. It's quite possible this, that... This little girl's going to find out okay. what... When did 911 happen? Wait, not when did 911 happen? Yeah. When did 911 become a Okay. Okay. So, contacting the police at 8:24 a.m. on August 8, 1973, Henley placed a call to the PPD. His call was answered by an operator named Velma Lines. What a name. Great name. I want to That's actually a drag name right there. It is, isn't it? I'm Velma Lines. Love it. Fancy a line? I know I do. <laughs> Sidebar, 1968. Ah. So 911 was a, was a uh, yeah, was available. So in January of 1968, the American Telephone and Telegraph Company announced that within its serving areas, the digits 911 were available for installation on a national scale as the single emergency telephone number. Wow. You heard it here, folks. Don't say we never teach you anything, mm. right? In his call, Henley blurted to the operator, y'all better come right now. I just killed a man. Actually, can I do that again? Can you please? Yeah. I, because in my mind, it, it, let's go. All right. Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. There it is. <laughs> I feel like I'm there. Now, Henley gave the address <laughs> to the operator as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As Curly, Williams and Henley awaited upon Call's porch for the police to arrive, Henley mentioned to Curly that he had done that four or five times. 
I done that. How many times? <laughs> Four or five. <laughs> now, minutes later, a PPD patrol car arrived at 2020 Lamar Drive. The three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside the house and the officer noted the 22 caliber pistol on the driveway near the trio. Henley told the officer that he was the individual who had made the call and indicated that Cole's body was inside the house. Mm-hmm. After confiscating the pistol and placing Henley, Williams and Curley inside the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Cole's body inside the hallway where it had fallen. Mm-hmm. The officer returned to the car and read Henley his Miranda rights. In response, Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. It's like, <laughs> I'm getting like a Blanche Dubois and I'm really here for it. I really love it. I do declare <laughs> I shot that man. I said I shot that man. I did. Once in the head, he kept coming at me. I do feel like I'm the missing cast member of Steel Magnolias or something. I love it. I love it. But I'm going to keep doing it. Do it. Curley later told detectives that before the police officer had arrived at Lamar Drive, Henley had informed him, if you wasn't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. I really, I love Delirious Dom. (laughs) I love Five Days with No Food Dom. I love all the Doms, but this one's great. I think I've just honestly done three different Southern accents, like (laughs) none of them match, but whatever. Oh, goodness. You tell me whichever one lands best. They're all landing. Okay. Just do it. Just go for it. Confessions Corner. In PPD custody, Henley initially was questioned in relation to the killing of Cole. He recounted the events of the previous evening and that morning, explaining that he had shot Cole in self-defense. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Yeah. The statements given by Curley and Williams corroborated Henley's account and the detective questioning Henley believed he had indeed acted in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this detective has no clue of all the yeah, episode the 44 stuff. of Shit and Bricks that had happened. Correct. The 27 other people, mm. whatever that list ends up being. Yeah. Now, when questioned regarding his claim that as Call had threatened him that morning, he had shouted that he had killed several boys, Henley explained that for almost three years, David Brooks and Henley had helped procure teenage boys some of whom had been their own friends for Call, who had raped and murdered them. So Henley's pretty much proffering this information. It's not like... Okay, so saying, yeah. yeah. They didn't have to sort of find that out. But is... So is he saying it in the sense of, yes, like I got the boys to come to the house, but I didn't act the way that Call did? Yeah. Is that kind of what he... That's what I'm gathering so far. Yeah. Now, Hen- I mean, it's still accessory, right? You're still an accessory. I wish I knew more about the law sometimes. There's only so much SVU can give you. And this is 1973 um, too. So, you yeah. know, the development of law and serial murders and, and all this sort yeah. of stuff is not. And Mariska Hargitay is not there yet <laughs> to clean up the streets. So- or was she? I'm on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Now, Henley gave a verbal statement stating he initially had believed the boys he had abducted were to be sold into a Dallas-based organization for homosexual acts, sodomy, and maybe later killing, but soon learned that Dean Cole was himself killing the victims 
he had procured. Okay. Henley admitted he had assisted Call in several abductions and murders and that he had actively participated in the torture and mutilation of six or eight victims prior to their murder. Most victims had been buried in a southwest Houston boat shed, with others buried at Lake Sam Rayburn and High Island Beach. And Call had paid up to $200 for each victim Brooks or he were able to lure to his apartment. So the point of all this really, just keep in mind, is Henley's not really fighting or denying any of this. He's being quite upfront okay. and just going, well, yeah, this is what's been going on. Do you feel there's some part that would just be like, I'm actually like, I'm done with it. Uh, like, pl- I'm like, I'm glad I've been arrested. I need to actually get this off my chest. Like you couldn't imagine the, the turmoil. It's not, it, I'm not defending anyone. It's just around that where you would go, do you know what? I'm done. I'm really sick of hiding this or lying about it or not admitting it to someone. I think the um, fact that he yeah. made the decision to shoot him is a, is a, Evidence mm. of that cracking and that being done. Sidebar, Marushka Hagate, born in 1964. So she was alive. So she was like eight year old. So, I mean, she could have stepped up and tried to solve this. You know, she was born four years before 911 was even a phone number. There you go. So, you know, like she's, she could have done something. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Get on it, Marushka. <laughs> Now, police initially were sceptical of Henley's claims, assuming the sole homicide of the case was what of call, which they had ascribed as being the result of drug-fueled fisticuffs that had turned deadly. Oh, Love that word. That's great. Fisticuffs is excellent. Welcome to the podcast, Fisticuffs. Henley was quite insistent, however, and upon his recalling the names of three boys, Cobble, Hill, Hillegeist and Jones, whom he stated he and Brooks had procured for call, the police accepted that there was something to his claims as all three teenagers were listed as missing at Houston Police Department. That's some good detective work. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and put two and two together here. You've given us these three names. Those lads are missing. I think there's a connection. Yeah. Now, Hillegeist had been reported missing in the summer of 71, and the other two boys had been missing for only two weeks. Moreover, the floor of the room where the three teenagers had been tied was covered in thick plastic sheeting. Mm. Police also found a plywood torture board measuring eight by three feet with handcuffs attached to nylon rope at two corners and nylon ropes to the other two. Also found at Cole's address were a large hunting knife, rolls of clear plastic of the same type used to cover the floor, a portable mm-hmm. radio rigged to a pair of dry cells to keep increased volume, an electric motor with loose wires attached, eight pairs of handcuffs, a number of dildos, thin glass tubes, and lengths of rope. Woof! <clears throat> what, a, what a list. What a hardware store list. You know I love Can I say lists. as well? Oh, but I'm going to say too, the only place that is normal for you to find thick plastic is in Nonna's good lounge room. Yes. Like you you can't go in there, boys and girls, that's the good lounge room. We don't sit. Um, and if we do, I daren't take the plastic off. Yeah. That's the good sofa. Exactly. Now, Dean Cole's Ford Econoline van parked in the driveway conveyed a similar impression. The rear windows of the van were sealed by opaque blue curtains. 
In the rear of the vehicle, police found a coil of rope, a swatch of a beige rug covered in soil stains, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides. That's suspicious. Yep. The pegboard walls inside the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks. And another wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides was found in Cole's backyard. Inside this crate were several strands of human hair. Mm. Where are the victims? You, I, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm hoping you do. Mariska, you got it. <laughs> Mariska, 911. Now, Henley agreed to accompany police to Dean Cole's boat shed in southwest Houston, where he claimed the bodies of most of the victims could be found. Inside the boat shed, police found a stolen half-stripped car, a child's bike, a large iron drum, water containers, two sacks of lime, and a large plastic bag full of teenage boys' clothing. Mm. That is definitely not a good start. No. Two prison trustees began digging through the soft, crushed shell earth of the boat shed and soon uncovered the body of a young, blonde-haired teenage boy lying on his side, encased in clear plastic and buried beneath a layer of lime. Police continued excavating through the earth, uh, through the earth of the shed, unearthing the remains of more victims in varying stages of decomposition. Most mm. of the bodies were found were wrapped in thick, clear plastic sheeting. Some victims had been shot, others strangled. The ligature still wrapped tightly around their necks. Ugh. Does lime break stuff down? I, to be honest, I really don't know, but I th maybe yeah. it masks I feel smell like or maybe encourages decomposition. Yeah. Okay, we'll find out. All of the victims found had been sodomized and most victims found bore evidence of sexual torture. Pubic hairs had been plucked out, genitals had been chewed, objects had been inserted into their rectums and glass rods had been inserted into their urethra and smashed. Oh, Oh, my little wee-wee hurts saying that. Yeah. Ouch. Cloth rags had also been inserted into the victim's mouths and adhesive tape wound around their faces to muffle their screams. The tongue of the first victim uncovered protruded over one inch beyond the tooth margin. The mouth of the third victim unearthed on August 8th was so agape that all upper and lower teeth were visible, leading oh. investigators to theorise the youth had died with a scream on his lips. After the recovery of the eighth body from the boat shed was completed at 11.55pm, the investigation was discontinued until the next day. I'm just going to put it out there. That's a pretty rough first day. <laughs> As first days go, I'm going to take a pass. Yeah. I'm going to sit down. Accompanied by his father, David Brooks presented himself at... Houston Police Department headquarters on the evening of August 8th and gave a statement in which he denied any participation in the murders, but admitted to having known that Dean Cole had raped and killed two youths in 1970. Mm. So Henley was very forthcoming straight off the bat, you know, had obviously just been through quite an ordeal and had killed Dean, whereas yeah. Brooks is playing a bit of hardball. Okay. Now, on, um, I've got a lime response. Sorry to interrupt you. Why do they put lime on bodies? Uh, I asked Jujul, and she said it is a commonly held belief that lime can be used to enhance the speed of decay, to reduce the likelihood of detecting a body, to destroy evidence, and that ultimately lime will lead to the rapid and total destruction of human remains. 
So it's around, yeah, that you were right. Mm. Masking smell, helping the decay, um, helping detection, that sort of thing. Well, it didn't work. Sorry, Dean. Yeah, sorry, Dean. You stink. Now, on the morning of August eight, uh, August 9th, Henley gave a full written statement detailing his and Brooks's involvement with Dean in the abduction and murder of numerous youths. In this confession, Henley readily admitted to having personally killed approximately nine youths and to have assisted Dean in the strangulation of others. He stated the only three abductions and murders Brooks had not assisted him and call with were committed in the summer of 73. Now that afternoon, Henley accompanied police to Lake Sam Rayburn, where he, Brooks and Dean had buried four victims killed that year. Two additional bodies were found in shallow lime-soaked graves located close to a dirt road. And inside the lakeside log cabin owned by Dean's family, police found a second plywood torture board, rolls of plastic sheeting, shovels and a sack of lime. Now, police found nine additional bodies in the boat shed on August 9th. These bodies were recovered between 12.05 and 8.30pm and all were in advanced state of decomposition. The 12th body unearthed bore evidence of sexual mutilation. I don't want to read that. Yuck. No, we don't. I don't. Yeah, we can. We can move past that. Another victim unearthed had several (coughs) fractured ribs as well. The 13th and 14th bodies were unearthed, unearthed, bore identification cards naming the victims as Donald and Jerry Waldrop. Now, Brooks gave a full confession finally on the evening of August 9th. So this is only, you know, we're all in the window of 48 hours here, folks. So things are moving quick. And he admitted to being present at several killings and assisting in several burials, although he continued to deny any direct participation in the murders. Mm. In reference to the torture board upon upon which Dean had restrained and tortured his victims, Brooks stated... Once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over but the shouting and the crying. He agreed to accompany police to High Island Beach to assist in the search of the bodies of the victims there. On August 10th, Henley again accompanied police to Lake Sam Rayburn where two more bodies were buried just 10 feet feet apart. As with the two bodies found the previous day, both victims had been tortured and so on and so forth. Mm. On August, 9, on August 13th, both Henley and um, Brooks again accompanied the police to High Island Beach where four more bodies were found, making a total of 27 known victims. The worst killing spree in American history at that time. Henley initially insisted that there were two more bodies to be found inside the boat shed and that the bodies of the two more boys had been buried at High Island Beach in 72. <sighs> There's so many bodies. Now, at the time, the killing spree was the worst case of serial murder in terms of the number of victims in the United Mm -hmm. States, exceeding the 25 murders attributed to Juan Corona, who had been arrested in California in 71. Oh, not the most recent Corona? No. Different. Very different. Um, The macabre record number of known victims attributed to a single murder case set by Dean and his accomplices was surpassed only in 78 by John Wayne Gacy, which was 33 Uh, boys. The Candyman and the Clown Man. Now, family of Dean's victims were highly critical of the police department, which had been quick to list the missing boys as runaways, 
who had not been considered worthy of any major investigation. The families Mm. of the murdered youths asserted that the police should have noted an insidious trend in the pattern of disappearances of teenage boys from the Heights neighbourhood. Other family members complained that the HPD had been dismissive of their adamant insistence that their sons had no reasons to run away from home. Everett Waldrop, the father of Donald and Jerry, complained that shortly after his sons had disappeared in 71, he had informed police an acquaintance he had observed Dean call burying what appeared to be bodies at this boat shed. Mm. That's pretty damning. Like, I think I saw someone burying bodies. Do you guys want to look into it? Yeah. Nah, they just ran away. Don't worry about it. Now, by, nine, by May 1974, 21 of Dean's victims had been identified with all but four of the youths having either lived in or had close connection to Houston Heights. Two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and in 1985, one of whom, Richard Kepner, also lived in Houston Heights. The other youth, Willard Branch, lived in the, in the Oak Forest district of Houston. What district of Houston did you live in? I was in Clear Lake and I lived okay. in the suburb of Bay Forest. Right, okay. And I believe Clear Lake is still there. Um, yeah. And I went to Armand Bayou Elementary School. Oh, so Armand Bayou. Shout out to anyone that's listening that went to or yeah. knows of Armand Bayou Elementary School. I assume it's still there. Yeah. Please, I would love for you to write in and say hi. <laughs> but please that one we will do. not ignore. <laughs> yeah, we won't. I won't put that in the garbage. We'll definitely read that. Now, on August 13th, the grand jury convened in Harris County to hear evidence against Henley and Brooks. The first witnesses to testify were Williams and Curley, obviously, who testified Mm -hmm. to the events of August 7th and 8th, leading to the death of Call. Another witness who testified to his experience at the hands of Call was William Riddinger. Now, after listening to over six hours of testimony from various people on August 14th, the jury initially indicted Henley on three counts of murder and Brooks on one count. Bail for each youth was set at $100,000. Now, the district attorney requested that Henley undergo a psychiatric examination to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial, but his attorney, Charles Melder, opposed the decision, stating the move would violate Henley's constitutional rights. And by the time the grand jury had completed its investigation, Henley had had been indicted for six murders and Brooks for four. Henley was not charged with the death of Dean, which prosecutors ruled on September 18th, had been committed in self-defence. Mm-hmm. Should get a bloody medal. Oh, good on you, mate. You didn't do that murder, but you did a half a dozen others, so cool. All right, we're not too far away, folks. Let's get to the trials. I like it. I'm here, I'm here for it. We don't need to rush. Trials are really interesting, so bear with me on this. Okay. Now, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks were tried separately for their roles in the murders. Henley was brought to trial in San Antonio on July 1st, 74, charged with six murders committed between 72 and 73. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses, including Curley and Riddinger, and Riddinger testified that at Dean's home he was tied to the torture board and assaulted repeatedly by Dean before he was released. Other incriminating testimony came from police officers who read from Henley's written statements and in one part of his confession, Henley had described his luring of two of the victims for whose murder he had been brought to trial. They were Cobble and Jones. 
Henley had confessed that after their initial abuse and torture at, at Dean's home, Cobble and Jones each had one wrist and ankle bound to the same side of Dean's torture board. The youths were then forced by Dean to fight each other with the promise that the youth who beat the other to death would be allowed to live. Ugh, that's a shitty deal. Ugh, it's just disgusting. Just the, the, the details of the torture, I know we don't want to dwell on them and go into too much detail, but it's just the level of insidiousness is... Ugh. Mm. Uh, after several hours of each youth beating the other, Jones was tied to a board and forced to watch Cobble again be assaulted, tortured and shot to death before he himself was again raped and strangled. The two youths were killed on the 20, July 27, 73, two days after they had been reported missing. Now, several victims' parents had to leave the courtroom to regain their composure as police and medical examiners described how their relatives were tortured and murdered. Mm. Now, throughout the trial, the state introduced 82 pieces of evidence, including Dean's torture board. You know, there was just so much. Yeah. Now, upon advice from the, his defence counsel, Henley did not take the stand to testify. His attorney, William Gray, cross-examined several witnesses but did not call any witness or experts for the defence. Now, on the 15th of July, 74, both counsels presented their closing arguments to the jury, the prosecution seeking life imprisonment, the defence a verdict of not guilty, obviously. In his closing argument to the jury, District Attorney Carol Vance apologised for his not being able to seek the death penalty, adding that the case was the most extreme example of man's inhumanity to man he's ever seen. Wow. That would be frustrating. Yeah. In that sense, you know, I know we've discussed death penalty before. We've discussed, you know, our personal feelings for it. But if you're presented with, yeah, 80, what, 82, 84 pieces of evidence that are showing just the level, yeah. that, like you would be frustrated around that, I think. Absolutely. Now, the jury deliberated for only 92 minutes before finding Henley guilty of all six murders for which he was tried. The following day, formal procedures to sentence Henley for the six guilty verdicts began and on August 8th, Judge Preston Dial ordered that Henley serve each 99-year sentence consecutively, which yes, totals... not concurrently. Yes, which totals 594 years and he was transferred to Huntsville Unit to formally begin his sentence. No surprises here. Henley appealed his sentence and conviction, contending the jury in his initial trial had not been sequestered. Ha! Like that's going to matter. You're getting all that information in the trial and you're frustrated they weren't sequestered. Yeah. Give me a break. He was also frustrated that his attorney's objections to news media being present in the courtroom had been overruled and citing that his defence team's attempts to present evidence contending that the initial trial should not have been held in San Antonio had also been overruled by the judge. Henley's appeal, appeal was upheld and he was awarded a retrial no. in December 1978. No, stop that. I was just about to say, here's a hot tip. Don't complain about your lawyers or the jury. How about you go back to the start and don't murder six people or be involved in this absolute atrocity of an act? I think that's a good place to start. Yep. Now, Henley's retrial began on June 18th, 79. This second trial was held in Corpus Christi with Henley again represented by defence attorneys William Gray and Edward Pegaloo. Henley's attorneys again attempted to have Henley's written statements ruled inadmissible. 
However, Judge Noah Kennedy ruled the written statements given by Henley on August 9th, 1973 as admissible evidence. Thank Good. goodness. The retrial Thank lasted goodness. only nine days with Henley's attorneys again calling no defence witnesses <laughs> and again attacking the credibility of Henley's written confession, which is a totally legitimate thing to do. Like, yeah, of let's course. just be super clear here. Their history is littered with confessions that are not above board, but... Mm. Still, the defense also contended the evidence provided by the state belonged to Dean Call, not Elmer Wayne Henley, which is also, yeah, you know. And on June 27th, 1979, the jury deliberated for over two hours before reaching their verdict. Henley was again convicted for six murders and sentenced to six concurrent 99 year terms. Oops, sorry, fella. Yeah. But good behavior. You can get out in 490 years. <laughs> <laughs> so if you behave yourself, there's a chance. You'd still look better than I do right now. <laughs> you look delightful. The lighting in the space is lovely. And you look you look really nice. Thank you. You're I welcome. I do not feel it. I know. <laughs> now, Brooks, David Brooks. Let's not forget about this character. Now, mm. was brought to trial on Feb 27th, 75. He had been indicted for four murders committed between December 1970 and June 1973, but was brought to trial charged only with the June 73 murder of 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. Now, Brooks's defense attorney, Jim Skelton, argued that his client had not committed any murders and attempted to portray Dean and, to a lesser degree, Henley as being the active participants in the actual killings. Assistant District Attorney Tommy Dunn dismissed the defence's contention outright, at one point telling the jury this defendant was in on this killing, this murderous rampage from the very beginning. He tells you he was a, he tells you he, he tells you he was a cheerleader, if nothing else. That's what he was telling you about this, his presence. You know he was in on it. Now, Brooks's trial lasted less than one week. The jury deliberated for just 90 minutes before they reached a verdict, and he was found guilty of Lawrence's murder on March 4th, 75, and sentenced to, a, to life imprisonment. Brooks showed no emotion at this sentence as the sentence was passed, although his wife burst into tears. Brooks also appealed his sentence, contending that the signed confessions used against him were taken without his being informed of his legal rights, but his appeal was dismissed on May 1979. Yay! Okay, folks, we're almost done. Now, Henley is still serving his life sentence at the Mark W. Michael Unit in Anderson County, Texas. Successive parole applications dating... Uh, from July 1980 have been denied. He's next eligible for parole in October 2025. Okay. Now, Brooks served his life sentence at the Terrell Unit near Rosharon, Texas. He died of COVID-19-related complications at a Galveston hospital in May 2020 at the age of 65. Okay. Henley's still out there, though, folks. Well, imprisoned, but out there. Yeah. Now, there are possible additional victims that I just want to make sure people understand. 42 boys had vanished within the Houston area between 1970 and Cole's death in 73. That's only three years. 
The police were heavily criticised for curtailing the search for further victims once the record set by Juan Corona for having the most victims had been surpassed. After finding the 26th and 27th bodies tied together at High Island Beach on August 13th, the search for any further victims was terminated. Despite Henley's insistence that two further bodies had been buried on the beach in 72. Why? Why would you do that then? Like if he's like, no, there's definitely two more. And he's like, no, oh, we found enough. Yeah. We're just going to, we're going to have a break. We're just, uh, we're done with it. Let's just forget it. It is very possible and very likely that Dean had a few sessions on his own as well. And exactly. Just because you're basically... Or that Cole did. Like, you don't know. Mm. You don't know that he wasn't just like, oh, I won't get my cronies to help me this time. Mm. It's just a murder, like it's an opportunity. That's awful. Now, if you do remember previously, I said early on in Henley's confession, he thought that the boys were being um, brought in for a, a, a national sex ring, a Dallas-based sex ring. Right, okay. There's a little bit of story here and... I don't know if other people are aware of a lot of stories have been coming out recently of other murderers operating in and around this area and other parts of the States around this time. There was a lot happening and and everything that's been coming to light with, um, what's his name, old mate that died in prison and uh, Giselle Ghislaine Maxwell and... um, Oh, yeah, Epstein, Epstein Jeffrey. Just... And even in that model documentary that's come out recently, I don't want to get down too far down that conspiracy route theory, but it's it's quite possible where there's power and where there's men with money and all that sort of stuff, organized crime and organized sex rings are a very real thing. And, and yeah. um, anyway, so I just... I mean, you could always ask Prince Andrew, I suppose. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Controversial. (laughs) Now, just quickly on that, during a routine investigation in March 75, the HPD discovered a cache of pornographic pictures and films depicting boys as young as eight, most of whom were from Houston Heights. Of the 16 individuals depicted within the films and photos, 11 of the youths appeared to be among Dean's known victims who had been identified by this date. The discovery raised the disturbing possibility that the statements Call had given to both Henley and Brooks prior to his murder that he was associated with an organisation based in Dallas which bought and sold boys may indeed have held a degree of truth. The discovery of the material in Houston in 75 subsequently led to the arrest of five individuals in Santa Clara, California. No direct link in these arrests to Dean was proven, However, as the HPD declined to pursue any possible link to the killing, stating they felt Dean's victims' families had suffered enough. You're not wrong in saying that, but you're also very wrong in not pursuing things to the depths you can ever possibly get to because there's all these other victims out there that have not had that freedom of being found and discovered. And the families having the closure. What about the other families that... That's right. Exactly. Now, on August 15th, 73, just two days after investigators had uncovered the final bodies initially linked to the Houston mass murders, investigators in Dallas uncovered a national-wide homosexual procurement ring. This police raise seized a card filing system containing up to 10 
thousand names of individuals across America ascribed to this network and the personal details of numerous teenage boys exploited by this sex trafficking ring. Keep in mind there is still no conclusive evidence to suggest that Dean had ever solicited any of his victims in this manner, not only because the HPD chose not to pursue this potential possibility, but also because neither Brooks nor Henley ever mentioned having met any individuals from the organisation Dean had claimed he was involved with. Now, in addition, neither mentioned having seen any of the victims either filmed, photographed or released from the devices Dean restrained his victims to until after their rape, torture and murder. The arrests in Santa Clara do, however, indicate a possible validity into Brooks's statements to police that Dean had informed him that his earliest murder victims had been buried in California. Ugh. <sighs> now that concludes our story. I do just quickly want to throw in a few pop culture things. Let's do we it. We loved it. We led a cop, the cop culture apparently. Mm. Okay, cool. She's doing well today. She did just finish two glasses of wine whilst you were telling the story. So maybe that's got something to do with it. You might hear a bit of the glug glugs during this epi. You deserve it. It's end of end of term. Yay. Now there's two pop culture references. There was a film loosely inspired by the Houston Mass Murders. It's called Freak Out and it was released in 2003. The film was directed by Brad Jones, who also starred as Dean. This film largely focuses upon the last night of Dean's life prior to Henley shooting him and contacting authorities. The film was procured mostly mixed to positive reviews. I haven't seen it. There's also one other. A production of a film directly based upon the Houston mass murders is called In a Madman's World, and it finished in 2014. It is directed by Josh Vargas. The film is directly based upon Henley's life before, during, and immediately after his involvement with Dean and Brooks. It's limited edition copies of the film were released in 2017. Okay. So no big blockbuster films here. And I know we've, we're selling this story as the Candyman, and mm-hmm. it's not, it's not directly linked to the story of the Candyman, other than, you know, titles and some small loose things, but this is the real Candyman folks. And it is, he's not very fun, very distressing a story. I'm going to take a bit of a break from doing some of these full-on true crime stories for a little bit and get back to Kate Kate and I's love of fear-based stories. So yes. I'm piecing out of the true crime genre for just a little bit because that was intense, I think, not just for me, but probably for you as listeners. Yeah, but I think it was great. And I really love the way that you told the story, Dom. And do you know what else I love? I really, you know, as unpleasant as it is, I think it's actually really refreshing to have something where you become affected by it because we're humans and the whole reason that we started this is because we wanted to look at scary things and things that frighten us with a bit of a comedic flair. But I think what we've realised 46 episodes in, sometimes things can you can make jokes about it but it's actually it's not funny and we we know that and we've always you know prefaced all of our episodes and we all crack jokes and do accents and all of that sort of stuff but that's because that's how we process and we deal but it's been really great to have 
you sharing that it's hard. I, uh, you know, as, as you know, great is maybe not the best word, yeah. but I think it's been something that, yeah, our listeners do understand. We do get affected by this. We don't take what we do particularly lightly, um, you know, in a, in a non-purposeful sense. So yeah, it's been a really interesting story and I love that you've gotten through it and you've shared it even on, you know, one foot in the grave, you're, you haven't eaten in five days. <laughs> like That would be a cause for someone to put you down in some, you know, times. Like if we're back in the 1900s, you wouldn't have survived this. No. So you are absolutely kicking goals, my love. And I really, really appreciate you and the work that you've done and telling us this story. So thank you. You are welcome. It, these stories are quite personal to me because there's quite a lot of, you know, John Wayne Gacy and this one and, and there's others that, you know, these these very predatory men and young boys. And it is a fear of mine in the sense of adults and what can be done to children is just horrendous. And I just, I mm. think that's a worse nightmare of a parent or anything like that. But I also come at it, or these stories touch me in a, in a way that you probably might not guess or people might not guess, but at, at that time when homosexuality was either illegal or so frowned upon these sorts of stories came out and they were weaponized and sort of taken out of context and then this mm. imprint of how devious and pedophilic homosexuals are meant to be that whole narrative just was in part stemmed from these sorts of stories and the yeah. collateral damage that happened because of it has felt has been felt across the gay community especially for literally generations and decades and decades and decades so i have like a social sort of you know social cause sort of behind it that yeah definitely th these stories have had a massive impact on lots of people obviously i don't want to take any anything away from the victims of this particular story and, and or any of the stories because obviously that's first and foremost where, where who we should be thinking of but it just it 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 goes beyond just that that's how epic and mega these stories really really are and you could say Absolutely. the same for things like all the cult stories they have wide-ranging things let alone all the all the women being murdered and them what that's done for women's rights and everything it's you know it's very complicated oh, it's a pen it's a pandora's yeah. box without a shadow of a doubt and i think too so from my perspective a big part of my job as an educator i teach you know young people and um there's a lot of times where you have Sorry. to separate yourself mm. um big time because you do hear things and you you see things that that young people go through and i tend to think that you and i are both quite empathetic people and so when things are happening to others, we can tend to take that on ourselves. And it is a real practice to be able to separate yourself. And for me to not have a home filled with 30 kids that I would love to take mm. and to protect and to look after, uh, it can be really difficult. So I certainly understand that, you know, our listeners, for ourselves, it is a challenging task to talk about some things that have a personal connection to us and something where if you put all of a sudden you know faces will pop into my mind of, of you know young people that I see every day and it's very 
hard. Yeah. So I have to push those out quite quickly and put the whole blurry face on because otherwise it can become too much. So, you know, it's an interesting world. World. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. But do you know what we have? And this is something that I hope our listeners can connect with too. We have the ability to laugh together exactly. about things to you know, be able to process, to be able to deal, to be able to enjoy some aspects of the horrendous things. Because as the saying goes, if you don't laugh, you'd cry. Yeah. And I much prefer the laughter. Agreed. All right, Kate, before we wrap up, do you want to give us mm -hmm. a bit of a teaser of what next week is in store or is it going to be a oh. surprise? I think it's going to be a surprise because I'm actually tossing up a couple of ideas. Love it. So I'm going to see how I go. I'm going to see what I land on because as you all know, I'm really into the rabbit hole thing. I all of a sudden start on something and then I switch to something else. Uh, so I'll leave it for now, but please, uh, you know, make sure that you are sharing all of our stuff on socials. Please reach out to us. If there's questions you've got, an episode you'd love us to do, a topic you want us to cover, um, something you want to know about us, like just ask. We are super open. Go as personal, as deep as you want. We are happy to share and we just want to connect with our listeners. So yeah, make sure you reach out and just continue to do what you do, you beautiful people. We love you so much. Yes, and don't forget to go check out Shitting Bricks podcast on Patreon. Please, if you have the time and the means to um, sign up and just donate a few dollars a month for us to keep doing what we do, it makes a huge difference to us. And another fun little reminder, I'm going to do it every week until October begins. We have mm -hmm. a massive Halloween special that we are participating in this year. It is mega. It's not just us. It is across seven different podcasts. We're doing one mega story, folks. So you're going to have to tune in. Each week, there's going to be new stories, new episodes across all these different podcasts. But it's all based on the one mega stories so Amazing. look out for we're going that. worldwide folks it's worldwide and we'll see you next week love ya love ya bye Mwah. that's a wrap big shout out to everyone for tuning in to shit and bricks don't forget to subscribe rate and review us plus you can find extra little nuggets on our socials next week we'll be back talking more shit so do not forget to tune in and remember to wipe flush and wash your hands Goodbye. Goodbye.